glad you're here this morning. Am I on here? I'm here with Monica. Uh, if you're here for the first time, I want to just welcome you. Um, I want to let you know what to expect, kind of our approach to what this is. You know, if you ask the question of what Sunday morning is, then it changes the way you operate if you nail it down and answer. And we believe that our answer is, a biblical answer is, that Sunday morning is for the people of God to be equipped for worship and wonder and to equip shepherds for glory and for love and for engaging families and um, to equip parents to parent, to equip people to worship. And um, in some ways, it's a front door into the kingdom. You know, some people go looking for the things of God at a local church on Sunday mornings. But we really kind of see maybe the more effective instrument being a captivated people that are enjoying Christ all week long, that that's an evangelistic instrument, families that are overwhelmed with the gospel and overwhelmed with Christ. So Sunday morning has a, a mindset of being attentive to those who may be stepping into the kingdom or searching for the Lord for the first time. But more than that, and we're attentive to that, but more than that is for the people of God to gather, to be equipped, to dine together. An appropriate way to look at what we're about to do as a church family is imagine us sitting around a dining table as a family. It's a big table, and it may not look like a table. We're all kind of oriented the same direction, but we're about to take some nourishment. We're about to gnaw on something together that changes today and tomorrow and the way that we live and love and just to get us, impact us from the inside out to be equipped to worship and wonder. So that's our approach to Sunday mornings. If you want to know what they are, and it's to escort you and encourage you to view what we're about to do together is dining if you're here for the first time or you're visiting with family and you're like, man, this is a little bit different, just view it as the, maybe the table is set a little bit different. But view it as dining. We're dining just like other churches in this community. And maybe a little bit differently, but it's the same nourishment, hopefully. And it's from that book. And that's what we're going to be doing here in these next few minutes. And speaking of nourishment, Steve Mayo is going to be bringing our message here in these next few minutes. Steve Mayo is our new elder for Crosspoint. And he was ordained as an elder at Crosspoint two weeks ago in a worship service. And uh, Steve is, is um, one thing I enjoy about Steve is he is feasting on his book. And he has the gift of teaching and the gift of um, just exposing and expressing the truth of the word. So he's going to be bringing the message here in the next couple minutes. So I want us to pray corporately for Steve and for a few other things uh, before we ever even begin dining together. Let's begin in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, we um, have a few things we want to pray for and, and lift up to your throne room. First of all, Lord, I want to um, pray for Steve Lawson and for Grace Community Church. We want to pray for his, his um, walk with you. Lord, we pray that he is captivated with Christ and with the gospel. We pray that the, in his studies that he is so wrecked and surprised by grace that is something that gushes over first onto his family and on his kids, wife and kids, and then onto his church family, and that he's preaching and serving and pastoring out of an abundance of enjoyment, an abundance of worship. And it's out of that overflow that you are um, equipping a people, nourishing a people for worship and wonder. And Lord, we pray that grace will be a people that, and if, if they are, that they're growing in this, that growing in a Christ-centered gospel and just an enjoyment of a work that was sufficient, a work that's complete, a work that we can't add to, a gospel that is um, life-changing, a commission that's shared, 
and a Christ that's so ample. We just pray for a um, overwhelming realization in that body. And we also pray that that will be in a spirit of partnership with this church body. Lord, we pray that you'll guard us, guard Grace, guard the other Christian churches in this community from ever being in a spirit of competition with each other. We pray for a spirit of agreement with a commission that's so wonderful, with a Christ that's so ample, that we'll be teammates in worship and wonder, and that we will have burdens for each other first and foremost. Lord, we just pray that you'll work that in us. We pray that for, for Grace Community Church this morning. We pray that for Steve Lawson and his leadership and his family. We pray that you'll work those things. Lord, we also want to pray in these next few minutes. I want to pray for uh, the commitments that we as a people are making as families and as individuals for change rolling into this new year, whether it's to lose weight or whether it's to read the Bible every day or whether it's to um, be more committed to one thing or another. Lord, I pray that these commitments, that you will guard us from ever doing these apart from faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that before they even get started, that they will be... Um, um, damaged, uh, destroyed the plans if they are apart from Christ. And Lord, if we, if we set out to lose weight or to commit to something or to engage something in a new way or to even read the Bible every day, that every single one of those things will be reckoned as not adding to a cross that's complete and sufficient and ample. Lord, but they will be out of the resources of an enjoyment of Christ, that we will be a dependent, needy people who are committed to changing and growing who are committed to growing in Christ-likeness, who are a people that will set our face like flint toward being different tomorrow, than, more different tomorrow than we are today, and that all those things will be in Christ and through his sufficient work and through enjoyment of him. We pray that you'll work that in us and that we'll, be, we'll bring glory to you in our pursuits this coming year. Lord, I also want to pray for the, these kids in these next few minutes. I know we've got some little ones in here, even... In my own family, Lord, I pray for parents. I pray for kids. Just pray for a divine attentiveness. Lord, I pray that you will just captivate little ones' hearts and that the Spirit will speak to little hearts and soften even little ones toward the uh, gospel, toward our Christ. We pray that uh, parents will uh, parent well in the pew and um, will bring glory to you in the way that we worship together in these next few minutes. And lastly, Lord, we want to pray for Steve Mayo and for his family. Lord, we count it a privilege as a, as a body and as a people to embrace and welcome Steve in a leadership role in this body. We uh, thank you in advance for what you're about to do and what you've been doing in his life in, um, in bringing about this message, Lord. We pray that you'll move Steve out of the way in these next few minutes, that you'll speak through him. Pray, Lord, in these next few minutes that truth will pass through human personality and that you'll be glorified by the truth that impacts us. And lastly, Lord, I pray for shepherds in these next few minutes, for men and for functional shepherds, maybe single moms that are leading families. I pray for equipment. I pray for families that will recognize that this is not a terminal event, but that we are being equipped for something that goes home and that invades Monday and Thursday and Friday morning and Saturday afternoon. Lord, I pray that you'll equip us in these next few minutes for glory. We turn this time over to you, and we trust you, we love you. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. I think I'm on. I'm on. Good. Had to check that out. Um, thank you, Ben. Um, I'm, I am the new guy on the block as far as eldering and leading is concerned. And I have felt very welcomed. Last Sunday was kind of a different Sunday, I believe, 
uh, we we haven't been doing one service. We've been doing two services. And last week we went to one service with Sunday school, which we hadn't ever done before. And I got lots of phone calls. So thank you very much. I'll, I'll try to make sure that I know the answers the next time you guys call <laughs> as to how we're supposed to be doing all these things. Um, ben wanted me this morning uh, to share a little bit, um, as being the new guy, and some of you may not, not, not know me as well as others, and that's your good fortune. But um, I, I was born and raised in Arkansas, which don't hold that against me. It's a really good state. Woo pig. And the, uh, the, the thing that you might want to know about me also is my father was a Baptist minister of music for 40 some odd years. Doesn't necessarily mean I can sing or anything like that, but it, it does mean that I've been involved in churches and, in, and been uh, around churches and various types of churches for most of my life. Uh, that being said, if you read the, the, the uh, elder the uh, information out on the website, you'll see that uh, even though uh, it was revealed to me that I was one of God's children at a fairly young age, it was a long time before I really got a passion and a heart for God's Word uh, like the one that I have now and, and a desire to teach. And, and a, not only a desire and willingness to teach, but, a, but an ability. Because without this, without the Word and without being in it and without studying it and without it pouring through your life, none of us can teach unless we've lived it. We just can't do it. And so uh, as we read the passage that I'm going to teach from, and I told someone earlier uh, this evening or this morning uh, that uh, it wouldn't take me very long. I, I certainly could not captivate a crowd with my story for much longer than I have right now uh, because I'm not that interesting a guy. But um, uh, just to let you know who I am and, and, and uh, who, who my family is, my wife, Karen, uh, teaches... Uh, school at Lone Oak uh, Middle School, and my uh, my daughter Catherine and my son Ethan both go to school there at Lone Oak, and uh, we're I'm I'm blessed to have uh, have someone who uh, will uh, will encourage me uh, as a partner uh, and as a friend, um, and also uh, keep me on right tracks because I can I can easily jump jump off jump off tracks very easily so i'm i'm fortunate to have someone like that in my life and if and uh, any any of us men men if you have a wife who will help you praise god every day okay because that is that is what a lot of this is about this is how we do what we do as men as we lead we we depend on uh the things that our wives do for us and the way that they help us lead so uh Wives be encouraged, uh, even though men may not express it all the time and very well, we do depend and love you all very much. So thank you very much for the opportunity to, uh, to uh, go over these passages with you if, if we could. I'd like to pray one more time as we, as we uh, go into God's Word and pray for the God of the Word to open our eyes and open our hearts. Father, I pray to you, I pray... Uh, just a simple prayer, and it's a prayer that many, many have heard before, and I and, uh, hope many will hear again. What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not, make us by your word, by the power of your grace, in the, in, to, in the honor of your name, to serve the living God. In your name we pray. Amen. The passage that I've chosen to teach from is Titus, uh, is in t- the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Um, 
it's a very familiar passage to some. The book of Titus is fairly familiar to many people here. I know because uh, many of you come from the same places that I've come from. Many of us have studied these passages together. But in Titus chapter 2, just to read uh, the passage in verse, starting verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. Now, this passage may seem like just a few verses and as I was looking at it and I've, I've studied over over this passage several times and I was going to just um, kind of like back the dump truck up today and just kind of offload the whole thing on you and I've decided that Brad really set me a wonderful example when he said that what he wanted to do on the opportunities that he had to teach he wanted to come out of one passage and one book uh, several times so that things could be unpacked nicely, so that everything was done in order, and so that there could be a, an understanding. And so as I looked through this and talked with various people, uh, some of them described it as, as uh, I couldn't just open up the fire hydrant and let the hose run, uh, some other analogies that work really well with this passage because it's so very, very rich. So what I'd like to deal with and what I'd like to talk to you about to start off with is bring us to a point, okay, the book of Titus, so far, this, first of all, it was written by Paul to a young preacher on an island, and not the island of Crete. And there was first instruction given in the early parts of the book of Titus uh, that Titus, by Paul's instruction and by Paul's authority as an apostle, was to do some things in setting things right in the church. The first thing he was to do was to, to, to develop and institute plural leadership. The reason for that was, and, and in, in the passage you can read it yourself for, for your homework, but it says there were many people who were teaching things they should not teach. And so as a guard for that, leadership was to be set up in the church in Crete. The second thing he was to do starts in chapter 2 of Titus, and these are the things that, that Titus was supposed to be instructing those who were under his care in. And he starts out and he breaks, the, breaks it into groups, older men, Older women, younger women, younger men. And so these things that are supposed to be being taught and the ways that these people are supposed to be uh, handling themselves and, and managing themselves and managing their households and managing their relationships because these relationships are all dealt with in here as far as relationships between older women and younger women, younger men. As, a, as an aside, younger men, there's only one instruction given by Paul that Titus is supposed to relate and that is to control yourselves. Apply it where it needs to be applied. But these things are the things that, that Titus was supposed to be instructing his people in. And it's ways that they were supposed to be obvious in their walk with Christ. Okay, These were things that were supposed to be seen in them. Older men, be con control yourselves, be respectable, be sober. The actual word in the Greek is the word grave. Okay, younger, Older women, all these things not to be... Uh, drinking too much wine and not to be talking too much, but to be leading the younger women, those types of things. All that instruction was given by Titus 
to the people. And then we get almost as, as an understanding, Paul in Romans, if you recall, if you've ever read Romans very much, you'll see that in Romans, Paul speaks and then he generates a question. Some of you will say, he says, or you might have this question, he says. It's a thing that Paul does quite often. And almost in the same way, not necessarily by asking the question, but in this passage, he answers the question of how are we to accomplish practically the exhortations that are found in the first two chapters of this book. If, if this is what we're supposed to be, then how are we supposed to be it? If this is what we're supposed to do, then how are we supposed to do it? And Paul, in foreseeing this question, starts verse 11 with the, the conjunction for. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All these things he said, these are the things you should be. These are the ways, the ways that you should be. And Paul says, for grace has appeared. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is a pattern for Paul. Paul, uh, uh, there, I was reading the, the commentary. It's um, the old unabridged Matthew Henry commentary. And he says, Paul always grounds his moral or ethical imperatives, or if you like, his calls to action in his doctrinal and theological indicatives. Okay, that didn't make much sense to me either when I read it. So I had to kind of look up a lot of words and find out what this all meant. And what this simply means is, Paul lays out what truth is, and then on the basis of that truth, Paul says, this is what should be because this is true. Paul says, this is what, how you should be, this is why you should be it. And that's what Paul's doing in, 11 through 14, in, in the passage in 11 through 14. He's saying, these are all the things that you should be, this is why the church should be led the way it should be led. This is why you should be older men, older women, younger women, younger men. This is why you should be this way. And this is how it happens. Um, I've titled this whole thing, if you were to look at the whole thing, I've titled it Foundations. Okay? And I, what it threw me back to, what this passage threw me back to, was the picture of, that Christ picked up in Matthew chapter 7. Some of you are familiar with it. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus likens our lives to houses. And you'll recall that he, that he describes two houses. And he says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain came, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the, st the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In other words, a good storm will reveal the foundation. It's true in houses, it's true in people. So, the question is, what foundations do we have? Jesus addressed this issue in Matthew because there were many people in his day and there are many people in our day who have that sandy build. They, they live in this sandy world having, having 
embraced, as you might say, or, or adopted this external lifestyle without ever encountering the life that makes that lifestyle possible. Let me say that again. They've, in, they've embraced an external lifestyle without ever encountering the life that makes that lifestyle possible. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul is trying to address here. That's what Christ addresses in this passage in Matthew. To all intents and purposes, to all of us, as we look at, at those people, and as we look at one another, there's really no way to tell what the foundation is. Just like a house, right? You walk by and you're getting ready to look at a home to buy it, and you don't know, you can't tell the condition of the foundation just by standing outside the house and looking at it. You may be able to on some because you may see cracks in bricks and things like that. And the same way, a little bit in our own lives, externally as we look at one another, we can't always tell what the foundation is and what reveals that foundation. Superficially, in churches as, as in homes, many times we would not be able to tell just by looking at people uh, what, was, what was happening because we see someone and they go through the same routines. They go stand up at the right times. They sing the right songs. They come to church at the right times, even on time. And they're here every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And so externally we say, that must be a good Christian. That must be someone who knows Christ. But the indication of knowing Christ is not in necessarily in the action, but it's in the motivation of the action. That makes the difference. And what changes are going on, what foundations they have. There are generally, or basically, two, two people that result from this. And I, I gave them names, and I, I borrowed these. One are, are people who struggle. And in talking with some of you, and, and, and dealing with this myself, and in, and in hearing your words, and seeing your, 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 your hearts, uh, the strugglers are, in, are the individual's who are, who are working hard at this, okay? They're diligently working at the Christian life, they're pers- but they're pursuing an external code of regulation. It's the thing that Paul talks about when he says, why do you concern yourself with do this, don't do that? And so these people, all of the, some, some of us may identify with these people, we embrace that external regulatory code, but we don't know why we're attempting this and we don't know how we're actually going to get to the top of this mountain that we're working so hard to climb. And so we struggle. We take everything that is an exhortation to us out of the word as something that instills more guilt in us because we don't know how we're going to do this. We don't know how we're going to live this life. We don't know how we're supposed to do this. We, 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 so we struggle and we go into church every Sunday and we hear an exhortation, a strong exhortation, a wonderful exhortation from the Word of God and we walk back out with our Bibles in our hands ready to beat ourselves again the next rest of the week to try to find out how in the world am I supposed to do this thing. I can't even figure out how I was supposed to do the thing was last week and I can't figure out the one the week before that. I don't know how to do this. And so we struggle. The second group I called, and I borrowed this one too, the drifters. Okay, These are people who are fairly indifferent about the whole thing. Perhaps even rebellious. 
when the word is spoken forcefully and with confidence, they tend to back off and say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I agree with that. And it's not a Berean step back, okay? If you know, if you know some, of the, some of the book of Acts, you know that the Bereans were said to be a, a more noble people because they were searching the word every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a group of people who, who are afloat on a tide of indifference, okay? They are rebellious toward the authority of God's word, and they don't give it credence, Beyond their personal preferences. If I feel like I want to do it, I'll do it. it doesn't, it's not the Nehemiah, and, and I, I love this book, and Ben, I think, has alluded to, to at least he's in speaking to me, I love the book of Nehemiah a, whole lot, a, a lot because in the 12th chapter, Nehemiah pulls out people's beards and beats them with sticks. I like that part. But uh, the, 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 the thing in Nehemiah that I'm actually uh, you know, talking about here is that, is that when, when they read the book of the law and they read it that they were supposed to build booths out of sticks on their rooftops, they didn't scratch their heads and say, well, let's get a committee together and let's figure out if we really want to build these booths and, and then let's run it by this and run it by that. They said the word says that we're going to do it. The authority of God's word says this is how it is and they took the step. Now, they must have looked awfully silly to their friends and family or, or, or the people that hung around there in Jerusalem at the time, but they did it. And these people, that these drifters, are, are far and away from that. They'll only do the things that look okay and look right and look acceptable in the culture that they're in. So they, they're rebellious to God's word. They don't like it proclaimed forcefully. They certainly don't like it said uh, uh, with, with strength, and they'd much rather just discuss it, okay? These are the, the people that you might, you might meet them in Starbucks, okay? And you might go into Starbucks, and you might sit down to have a cup of coffee, and you have a, this ethereal discussion about something, okay? And it may start out with the Word, or it may start out with some concept that someone says is from the Word, but it's really not. It's really not grounded in biblical truth. It's not grounded in, in reality. What it is is uh, a, a dialogue about, about the Word that makes, you feel interact, makes people feel interactive with it, but allows them to determine what parts of Scripture they will listen to and what they won't listen to. What they will do and what they won't do. These drifters are unsure of their point of departure and they're unclear of their destination. What a terrible thing. Think about it. They don't know where they came from. They don't know grace that really transforms. And they don't know where they're going. They don't know where this ride ends. So they just drift along. Now what do we have to offer people like that? What are we going to say to them? Titus 2, 11 through 14 and into 15 is probably as good a, a concise, encapsulated bunch of biblical truth for these people that exist anywhere in the Bible. It provides instruction that gives liberty to the strugglers and takes that load off that says, how in the world am I going to do these things? It also grips the drifters because one group is saying, I didn't know that I should live this way. And the other says, I didn't know I could live this kind of life. I didn't know I should 
I didn't know that there was a way. I didn't know that I could. So when someone asks, why should I? And another asks, how can I? The answer is found in one word, and the word is the third word in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. And that word is grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In that one word, it answers why I should live this life. And it answers how may I live this life. Now, the word grace is, I believe, misunderstood and misapplied and devalued in, in basically the evangelical church today. I praise God that I don't think that it is misunderstood and devalued at all in this church. Okay? I can go further with that, but that would be an aside also. So uh, if you want to talk some more about those things, uh, I'll be glad to talk with you afterwards. But in that, we need to understand what grace is. It's a key word in Paul's theology because Paul talks about it all the time. And when he wrote to the church in Colossae, he told them how pleased he was that the word of God had been producing fruit in them. And Paul says he's heard that it's been producing this truth ever since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. When they understood God's grace in all its truth, it provided the impetus for Christian beginnings. It started them off, the grace of God that brings salvation, okay? It gave them the prospect of Christian conclusions, where they're going to end up, okay, or your destiny. And it gives you the power or the energy for living a life in between those two points. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions in this present age while we live now. That's what this is about. That's what grace does. So in your Christian life right now, it hinges on your experience and understanding of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Y'all are familiar with that passage, I'm sure. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace you are saved. Romans 12, 6 says it's by grace that any of us is able to serve. Any of the things that we do, we do based on the measure of grace that's given us, which is infinite. And so we serve out based on knowing grace. And without grace, we don't know how to serve. Without grace as our teacher, without grace as, as that, that has pierced our hearts and driven home to us the truth of God's word. Without that, we have no ability to serve. That's what, the, what Romans chapter uh, 12 verse 6 says. And so, there are four things. Now, I'm, I told you that, it, that I was going to follow Brad's example, and I love that there are four things. Because if I know that if, if we stayed here and I tried to get all four of these things in all at once, it would maybe be a little like Nehemiah, where Ezra stood and read the book of the law for a quarter of the day. And then, and none of you, and, and at the end of it, all the people wept. I don't know if it's because they were there a quarter of a day, but I'm sure that you guys would probably weep or throw things. So, uh, 
there are four points here. I'm not going to bring them all out today. But the first point is the salvation that grace provides. The second is the instruction grace conveys. The third is the anticipation grace creates. And the fourth is the transformation that grace performs. And we'll just deal with the first one, the salvation that grace provides. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, chapter 2, verse 11. First of all, lest we have, and you'll have to let me know when I, or something, maybe. How long do I have here? Oh, we're there. All right. Good boy. Buckle in, people. No, really. Uh, a A quick definition of grace, so that we don't, lest we use a word without having a definition of it. A working definition of grace. Grace is the undeserved love of God to men revealed in Christ Jesus. The undeserved love of God to men revealed in Christ Jesus is God's active favor bestowing his greatest gift on those of us who deserve his greatest punishment. It is that thing whereby God gives us what we do not deserve. Okay? Not mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is being given something that you don't deserve. Understand the distinction of that because we love to interchange those things, mercy and grace, but they're not the same thing. Okay? God has shown both of those things. He's acquitted us. Mercy. We don't, we don't bear the punishment. He's given us life in Christ. That's grace. Okay? The tremendous thing about the Bible also is that God doesn't just use these concepts. He doesn't leave us out here hanging to figure out what this thing is. But he has spoken to us finally and savingly in a person, in his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we think about grace, we should not think simply of a definition, but we should think of a person. And what have we spent the last week doing? I pray, I pray with all my heart that we've been spending time thinking about that person because we just celebrated his birth. I hope fathers, parents, I hope you took your children and said, the gifts are great. And I loved, I loved it. Brad said, we, what, we, what is it Brad said? We, we, we sit around and, and trade stuff. Okay, and that's great. It's fun to trade stuff. But what is this about? What is this about? And I hope that you spent time with your children and with one another looking at what this is about. Last week, we read about the the precursor, the preamble maybe, to to the arrival of Christ. The one who had set the way, John the Baptist, okay? And, the, and, the, and, the, and, and his father, as he stepped outside, and I love that, it's so cool. Uh, I love that passage where it says they, they couldn't figure out why in the world would his, his mother want to name him John. There's no one named John, and the dad says his name's John, because God said it's John. Okay, I love that, because this is a step outside of the norm. Okay, and so Zechariah says, no, it's not going to be Zach Jr. or any of that kind of, it's going to be John, because that's what God said. And so, in that time, as God leads into this thing appearing, we ask the question, how has God's grace appeared? This word appeared in here is a Greek word, epiphania. 
Okay, and some of you, I don't, I don't imagine many of you come from an Anglican background, or, but, but you'll know that, that the epiphany, that's where we get that word, epiphany, is from this word epiphania. And it means simply to appear. And, and when you have an epiphany, epiphany, when people say, I had an epiphany, that means they had a revelation. And that's simply what this is. This is the revelation of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's happened here at Christmas time. Uh, this appearing in Matthew four, chapter thirteen. Uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew four, verse thirteen a, and going through through verse sixteen. In this passage, uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah, Isaiah nine, chapter two. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And what he's saying here is that into our moral and spiritual darkness, grace has come. And I love that. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the songs we just sang was out of the Song of Zechariah and where it talks, I believe, about those, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. On the people living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And that light was the grace of God in the pers- person of Jesus Christ. In the birth of Christ and in his life, In his sayings and signs, in his death and his resurrection, darkness has been dispelled by the light of grace. And that's what this is about. Malachi 4.2, looking forward in, in way down the quarters of time, way down in time said, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And looking so far down the road as Malachi was, without fully understanding what he was saying, he spoke about God's grace in the person of Christ. In John, as we, as we would have studied, I don't know how long it was when we were in John 1. Ago it was in John 1. We, we were in John 1. I wasn't here. But in John's prologue, he begins, verse 15 Speaking about John the Baptist, John testifies concerning him. We studied some about that last week. He cries out, saying, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. All the blessings which are ours as, as Christians and in living, this, in living this life can be traced to one source. One, that is God's grace manifested in God's Son. If any of us has any good thing at all about them, with them or in them, the law reveals the shadow the shadow is dispelled by grace and grace implants in the hearts of men and women truth and a desire for righteousness. And all the blessings that we have in Christ come from the grace of God. So if that's how the grace appeared, we have to ask, I believe, in, in this first verse, why has this grace appeared? Now, the answer for many of us, would be one that's very familiar. It's also the one that would be the first out of the mouth of most 
evangelical Christians at this point in history. And that, was, that would be because man needed it. But that's not where the Bible starts. First and foremost, the Bible starts with the answer to why has God's grace appeared. It has appeared because of God's eternal purpose. And to, to wrestle with this, we need to go look at the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, and verses 1 through 14, and as you read down through there, and, and again, there's a little homework there for you to read the first 14 uh, verses of Ephesians chapter 1. But as you got down in there, uh, into verse 5 and verse 6, uh, you would see this in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In accordance with his pleasure and will. When we think of the appearing of grace, when the coming of Christ, we think wrongly if we think merely of man's need. As real as that need is, and as we'll see in a moment, hopefully, we think biblically, though, when we think first of God's glory and God's eternal purpose. The reason God came in the way that he did is because of who he is and in order that his eternal purpose might be fulfilled and that his grace, which is being manifested in his son, might be eternally praised. That's a lot of long phrases. Break it down, okay? God came for his pleasure by his design to do his will. That's the crux of it. Verse 7, if we go a little further down, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Why and how? In accordance with his pleasure, with the riches of his grace. Now, this to me begged a question and, said, and I thought, well, wait a minute. What about what I, what about what I was always taught and what about what I always believed and what about what I actually felt? At that moment that I either that I walked an aisle or shook a hand or did whatever it was we might have done to acknowledge the saving grace of God in our lives. What about that? And I, I asked this question did I think that I was here or that I was saved because I got smart and I figured it out? And I want to say to you that I have heard recently a prominent Preacher, I'm not going to say a name, but if you listened over a little bit of time, you heard this preacher say, a smart man will get saved. All right, I'm going to tell you, it's not about smart. It's not about how wise you are or about how unwise you are. Praise God. It's not about getting smart and, and figuring it all out and working out the great equation of life and determining that this is the way that we should go. Now, we, we may think that at the onset for a while. 
as, as we're infants in Christ. But as we mature and grow, we, we've, and we've walked this for a while, we understand and begin to, begin to grasp that salvation has an origin way far and beyond what we can understand. We realize it truly is in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So first and foremost, and, and reading on in verses 11 and 12, in him we are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, what? For the praise of his glory. Now this is a lesson that the church has got to learn. In a day when the gospel is presented as beginning simply with man and his need rather than where the Bible begins, which is with God and his glory. The reason that you and I ultimately were saved is not so we would not spend eternity in hell, but in order that we might live to the praise of his glory. All right? The reason we gather right now today is to give him glory. The reason we proclaim the word of God, the reason I'm standing up here is so that God will receive glory. Not so you can see me and meet the elder. Not so you can know uh, how this person delivers or how fiery he gets or how angry he looks when he preaches, which I do a lot. I know, I understand. Live with it, okay? The grace of God does, it has not come simply to, to, to fill up some vacuous nature of our lives. Okay, We don't come in here simply to, to have something pumped into us so that it can just leak out through the week. If, if, it's, if that's, it's funny, I read a story just the other day. I was reading a book, and there was this thing uh, about a man who came to the altar on altar calls at, at ev- ev- uh, evangelical gatherings over and over again. About the 14th time, he got up and started walking down, and some woman in the back corner stood up and said, Don't fill him, Lord, he leaks. This is not why we're here. We're not here to be filled up with stuff so that we can walk around leaking the rest of the week and then come back all vacuumed out again. We're filled up to be equipped to glorify God in our families, in our walk, in our work, in our lives, in our relationships. All of them. Not some of them, not the ones we just choose and not the ones that are comfortable. All of them are to glorify God. And that's why we exist. We exist to bring glory to God. And that's the reason grace has done this thing into us. The reason we proclaim God's word is that he gets glory. The reason we leave this place and go out into the world and live our lives is that he might be magnified in the wonder of who he is. So for us to trudge in here every week just to fill up that vacuum is to do a disservice to this occasion of worship. That's why over and over again you'll hear people, you'll, you'll hear us, I pray, as leadership looking at you and, and exhorting you to be in the Word, to be taking the shepherd's guide and saying, this is what we're studying, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, this is what you need to know. Because to, to simply come in here once a week is not going to cut it for you. For one thing, it's just not going to cut it for it because none of us is that good. Even Ben's not that good. 
Amen. He, he just, I mean, I'm telling you, none of us can fill all of you up to the point where you just don't need anything by the, by the, and for me, by the Sunday afternoon after you've been here for a Sunday morning. We can't do that. This can do that. This living, active, sharp, penetrating, piercing, destroying word is what can do that. And so we exhort you. Fill yourself up. To, it's to, misunder, to live this way is to misunderstand at the very beginning the whole reason for why we exist in Christ Jesus. If we're simply in Christ Jesus, not to end up in hell, and our fire insurance is on, and, we're, and we're, we, we think we're going to go in, as Paul maybe describes in another passage, singed in the seat of our pants, but we'll make it. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Because we represent something other than ourselves and other than fire insurance here on earth. Our relationships, our walk, our actions, our talk. And uh, uh, we could go to First Peter to look at that. We talked about that out, and Ben and I talked about that out in the hall earlier today. Uh, the Word does not let you go. So if we are not being filled by this Word day by day, glory unto glory, being transformed to the image of Christ, then there's no difference in us at all. And we're just walking out in the world, saying, well, here I am out here, and I'm something else here. That's the struggler. Do you see that? Do you see that what I described as the struggler is that person who walks out of here not knowing how, so they live this way out there, and they come in here every week and live another way. We can't do that. We have to live to the glory of God day by day, every day. Now, if that answers one part of why has God's grace appeared because of God's eternal purpose, then having said that, we need to look quickly to see what also the Bible equally affirms, and that is that the grace of God has appeared because of man's inescapable problem. Now, to do this... Again, you could read on through Ephesians, and I would exhort you to read on through Ephesians. You'd get eventually to Ephesians chapter 2, which we've looked at many, many times. And Ben has said it wonderfully, never pass up an opportunity to read Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to see that Christ came on a rescue mission because of the condition that confronted men. And what is that condition? Chapter 2 of Ephesians, as for you, okay, that's all of you, me, us. Wins, okay? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. I love that, dead to live. Isn't that something? With the living dead, without Christ. When you followed the ways of this world, of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time. Doing what? Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of inter interjected God's wrath. We were the objects, not the subjects. God's the subject, the object of the wrath of God. Now, I often throw back here and wonder, well, what, is it, what would it maybe be like to be the object of God's wrath? And I, it, it throws me back to numbers, and uh, I 
I'm going to say someone's, I, I remember I was teaching this at one time, and, and uh, Jeff Ott had the coolest reaction to this. Uh, in Numbers chapter 13, there's a statement made after the people of, of God, the Israelites, have stood and, and said, uh, uh, grumble. it says they grumbled in their tents and they threatened to stone Moses and Aaron, and they said, we need to choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Because we've gone through this land and the people are too big, the fortresses are too, and we're going to get whooped. That's my paraphrase, whooped. But we're going to get whooped. And so God calls Moses in and says, Moses, I want to talk to you. That's also my paraphrase. And Moses comes out and says, this is what the, 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 word, this is what the, the God of Israel has said. It's going to be exactly like you say, but it's not going to be exactly like you say. For four, this is the 40 years wandering thing. Everyone who is at this age or older who's grumbled against Moses and Aaron, who've grumbled and backed, backed a, uh, away from doing what I would tell them to do, they're going to wander in the wilderness till they're dead. And your children will experience, and it's not, the, it's not wrath, but it's, your children will experience unsettledness because of what you did. And then he makes this horrible statement. And you will know what it is like. To have me against you. Now that just chills me. Just to think about the living God. Saying you will know what it's like. To have me against you. And that's what this is. The wrath of God. It was, is ready to be poured out on men. Sons of disobedience. Like all of us who lived among them at one time. That's man's problem. We're enslaved to passions and desires. We do not possess in ourselves any, any, any external religious practice or anything that we could do that could liberate us from that. And we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So here's God in eternity with his purpose of redemption and man in time dead, unable to save himself, enslaved and unable to bring about liberation. And Jesus, the grace of God, comes and brings liberation and brings salvation because there was no other way. Because of God's eternal purpose and because there was no other way to salvation. Just a, just a quick story. I'm not a big storyteller, but I like this one. Uh, do you guys remember the Air Florida uh, Flight 90 deal where the airplane took off from, uh, um, I think it was out, not Washington, but out of uh, Washington, D.C., and it hit the bridge and crashed in the Potomac River? This was like in, in, 1980, in 1982. It's a long time ago. But uh, in, in crashing in the Potomac River, uh, there was a man who freed himself from the wreckage and didn't need rescue anymore, but saw someone else struggling in the water and went back into the water. Now, this is the Potomac River, December 27th, and the river's frozen and cold. And he dives back in, having freed himself, dives back in from the bank, uh, uh, seeing someone struggling in the water, brings that person to the bank, hears someone else dives back into the water and down the fuselage and comes back out with a woman. And then for a third time, hearing uh, the cries of another woman, dove in and rescued her, and in the process of doing that, drowning himself and dying. So that today, his family have a medal 
that says that Arlen D. Williams Jr. was a hero. And he was a hero. They named the bridge after him that was, that was hit by the airplane. But to three people, three, two, three, three people in the United States who are alive right now, he was much, much more than a hero. He was a savior. And for many people who walk out here as we leave this place, and for maybe for some of us in here, Jesus is a hero or a great teacher or a prophet or, 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 or a wonderful man. But it is only those whose lives have been invaded and arrested by grace who say, He is my Savior. And that's one thing that grace does. There was an old hymn written by a guy named Spencer Walton. And it says, Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the love that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to his fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to his fold. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Why did it, how did it appear? In the person of Jesus Christ. Why did it appear? To bring glory to God. And to save us because there was no other way for us to be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that as, we, as we've looked just a little bit into, into one small part of grace, that grace that brought your son Jesus Christ here on earth, that grace that humbled him, that as he humbled himself to death on a cross, That you have, have uh, taken your son and by his resurrection exalted him, given him a name above all names. That, it, that the name of Christ every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of your wonderful name. Father, I pray that you would instill and burn into our hearts and lives that our our purpose here is not simply to avoid hell. And our purpose here is not simply uh, to end up in heaven. But our purpose here is to live to glorify you every day by every step, by every word that we say. We're instructed in your word that we should speak the very words of yourself, of God. And Father, I pray that anything unhelpful, anything uh, distracting, anything unruly or untamed that I might have said today would be uh, uh, eliminated from people's minds. And that you would uh, have, have kept in people's hearts and minds only the things that you would have them know. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to address your people. I pray that... Uh, as in as in our as in my heart that you would that you would would tear it open that you would uh, uh, just in, invade by the expulsive power of a new affection and and get rid of all the things that are that are in my life that do not bring glory to you and I pray that you would do that for each of us now bless us as we continue to worship uh, and it's the name of Jesus Christ your Son. To the praise of your glorious grace, we ask it. Amen.